And now for our feature presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Botching It Up podcast. Every bruise, bump, and botch. Wrestling, you've been put on notice. Oh, let's get ready to ramble! What's up? This is the Botching Up podcast number 28. And this week we're watching Wrestle War 1990 Wild Thing. As always, you're with me, Benito, and my good friend, Basil. Hey, homeboys. Gather around. Some serious stuff is gonna go down for the Wrestle War 90 while the kings of the ring all come together and do the right thing. Lex Luger, the Steiners, Nature Boy Sting. Yeah, they all be doing that wild, wild thing. Oh, that's the rap for the, the promo video. I had to try and find something for you. Did you write that down or did you remember that? I had to write that down word by word. Oh. It's not something I wanted to admit here, but that's I, I, I did that, yeah. See, knowing you, I thought that would be something that you would just remember. Lock in there. <laughs> I, I, mean, I know I'm like a walking, boring statistic machine, but I, I don't think I can remember that rap. It's too shit. <laughs> okay, so this is part three of our 1990s saga. Uh, so this took place on February the 25th, 1990. We got three championship belts on the line in Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. I probably butchered that name. 7,894 fans in attendance. Tuxedo Terry Funk is on commentary with Jim Ross. I'll just get for you here. This is a new statistic for you. Uh, 175,000 pay-per-view buys, which... To put in contrast with the last pay-per-view we watched, Royal Rumble, did 260,000. So not too far off the mark of WWF at this point. Where did you find those pay-per-view buys for WCW? I just, deep down in the internet, it took, took, me, <laughs> took me a minute to find that. I, I, did, I did scour through, I couldn't find anything. That's actually really interesting, because I thought that the WWF in comparison to the WCW's buy rates would be skyrocket. But the fact that there's only 100,000 in it is um, news to me. Like, I didn't realize they were doing money yeah. like this. Because we've been told so many times that 1990 to 1995, basically until Eazy-E picked it up, that WCW was making no money whatsoever. So apparently it's not true. So 1990 is a rough year for WWF. But 91, they absolutely triple the numbers that they're currently doing uh, so something happens which we'll get to in the coming months i guess um but this is about standard for wcw this is this is quite high compared to the last ones that like starcade uh three months ago did 130,000. capital combat which is their next page did 160 so around about the same a little bit less it's on average comparing um those buy rates to of wwf just before the network came in they're pretty much the same oh really honestly yeah uh towards the end of the pay-per-views being paid for wwe were going down to a low 170 160 150 so they that really shows that wwe shouldn't be proud of the buy rates that they were doing back then can you explain something to me yeah shoot this isn't a joke can you do you have any idea why this uh pay-per-view was marketed as wild thing absolutely been, no idea <laughs> i've been racking my brain for a, a long time to try and find some sort of link or reference to the 
the catchphrase apart from the really awful rap, but I, I came up with nothing. No, it just seems like all the WCW pay-per-views we're about to watch have an awkward tagline. I made a joke a couple of weeks ago. This is where uh, Vince has got the idea from this year to have all these weird taglines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's been doing that for a couple of years now. Right, so the big story going into this show is that Sting got injured back at Clash of Champions. So he's out against Ric Flair, this massive title match they've been building up forever. And instead, they've replaced it with Lex Luger. Now, we need to talk a little bit backstage of what's going on, what's going on with WCW. There's massive financial cuts happening across the business. They want to shrink down the roster to about 28 people. So this guy, Jim Hurd, which I think every wrestling fan has heard his name. Jim Hurd uh, was officially named uh, by JR, the half ass mark that he is. <laughs> so <laughs> JR's got beef. Yeah, so he's a TV guy and he's a big wrestling fan, but he has absolutely no idea what he's doing. And he's trying to control the wrestling committee, who at this point, Ric Flair was the head booker of the wrestling committee. And he's pressured them into putting Lex Luger into the main event to try and create a start of Lex Luger. Well, he thought he was at the point Sting was at, but whereas Sting was going to win the championship belt on this night. That was the plan. This is just in terms of normal wrestling booking quite ludicrous because uh, we watched Clash of Champions 10 which had been broadcast about two weeks before this pay-per-view in which a a woman was violently th- uh, throwing her middle finger around in the crowd at Lex Luger who was, who was a heel like a hard heel at this point in time. Two weeks later he's presented as the monster meat baby face that is going to take the championship from um Ric Flair, because he feels that uh, WCW's biggest babyface at the time, Sting, has had his honor taken away from him. The, the very fact that they would even try this, a two-week turnaround with two weeks of TV to turn a, a hard heel into a strong babyface, is actually quite incredible. And uh, you telling me that it came from somebody that didn't really know the business makes all the sense in the world. So, uh, JR and Cornette, both said that this was just crazy, lazy booking. Um, they've both come up with ideas of people that are on the card who maybe weren't as high profile and maybe wouldn't have done great pay-per-view buys, but people that could have gone in there and had a better match, although we'll get to that in a minute. Um, they could have done a better story with Ric Flair, but instead they had to put a guy that they were pushing. This Jim Hurd guy wanted Lex Luger to be the next thing after Sting. Uh, so that's the direction they went in. But what's really interesting is I read an interview with Lex Luger that um, Jim Hurd still wanted the belt to be swapped. And now it was going to Lex Luger. All of the wrestling committee said, this is a horrible idea. Do not put it on Lex Luger. We st- <laughs> we're still going to crown Sting at some point. Uh, don't jump the gun on Lex. And even Lex himself uh, was saying backstage that don't put the belt on me. I don't want the belt. I'm not ready for it. I can't be the face of the company, I can't do the right kind of buy rate. Plus also, I've only got Ric Flair to face. You know, Ric Flair can face against anyone. Even Sting at this time could face against anyone on the roster, whereas Lex Luger didn't have that star power. It sounds very intelligent from the point of Luger because it, it's the whole thing is, is insane in the first place to try and turn a heel into a face in two weeks, but then to give him a championship on top of that when he actually hasn't even been built up to a main event credible status yet is just uh, confounding. 
I I <laughs> I can only imagine JR and Cornette in that room um trying to figure out how to politely say you're a fucking idiot to Jim Hurd. Oh, I don't is... I don't think there was any politeness about it. <laughs> but an- another thing that you you just told me about um which I read a little bit about of J- Jim Hurd trying to cost cut and reevaluate contracts and take some people away uh, uh, and leave them alone. That's that to me again is insane because of like just looking up and down this card. This is a, a a very slim in the water roster to begin with. There doesn't seem like a, a hell of a lot of um, upper mid card to main event talent around. We, and I mean that that's showcased in itself by them turning Luger face and trying to put him in the main event. They yeah. they didn't really have build up superstars so i mean the very yeah. fact that Hurd was at the same time trying to get rid of people is maybe he maybe he was worse than bill watts like <laughs> i think i think a lot of cuts had been made already we spoke uh last week about tully not coming back to the company because they weren't going to give him the money they'd promised him and a few other people like some wcw lifers had their contracts renegotiated for less money than what they were earning before 1990 Interestingly, you know, we talked about, we mentioned during the Clash of Champions 10 main event that the great muter didn't really do anything other than smooth his own ego because every time Ric Flair would get onto the top of the turnbuckle yeah. to hang around with Sting, great muter would get up on the top of the turnbuckle as well. Well, he was gone uh, by this point. Two weeks later, he had quit along with the Dragon Master, who was also in the main event for Clash. They'd taken their bags and, and they'd gone straight back to Japan because they thought that they weren't being treated very well. And what's crazy is apparently the TV ratings are going up and up and up and up and up. WCW at this point is actually doing more business. Ric Flair is controlling the company and he's doing a good job. All of this argument with Jim Hurd and then this whole Lex Luger situation is the final nail in the coffin that Ric Flair resigned from the booking committee. He stays on as a active competitor for another Two years, is it? Before he goes to WWF? Uh, I think he, he was around by the time of Survivor Series 91. So I, I don't... So another year. I don't think he was... Yeah, he wasn't long for the company. He, he basically jumped with Mean Mark, really. So basically around this point, Ric Flair has given up and he's just riding out his contract. Another potential good opponent for Ric Flair during this time would have been Steve Williams. But again, contract negotiations with him had failed and he would he would went off to Japan as well. He'd be the first guy i think worked for new japan and all japan at the same time he was already gone people were but people were leaving the ship at this point and i mean considering the all of the issues that were going on backstage with the talent at this time i thought they they pulled off a pretty decent pay-per-view well so this is the point everyone is really down on this whole lex luger situation but the actual match was pretty great yeah, I mean, I, I was, I'm surprised I haven't seen this before, and I, I solidly enjoyed it, even all 40 minutes of it. So JR considers this, definitely up until this point, Lex Luger's best match, maybe his best match ever. And I, I mean, as, as good as Luger was in this match, you have to say that that was all down to Flair. Oh yeah, Flair, Flair made it. Flair was on a, on a prime level tonight. It, it, this was... I mean, it's ridiculous to say, but Ric Flair's peak lasted for about 10 years. This was still the peak of his powers. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. Like, there are some legends in this booking committee, but I don't know what they were thinking. So this match starts off with the injured Sting coming out 
and the crowd goes crazy. They love him. This is their boy. And then Lex Luger walks out and has to follow that. Why? How does that make any sense? Again, yeah, the, almost immediately a misfire off the bat. That they could have either put Sting in a promo halfway through the show because they had promised it a lot. All of the wrestlers, by the way, were wearing some sort of um, badge around their arms saying a "Get stand, Better Sting" or something. Stand with Sting or something, wasn't it? Yeah, apart from Rick Steiner, who just got a piece of paper and, <laughs> and sellotaped it to his <laughs> singlet. Uh, obviously, he couldn't. They couldn't find a band for him, but. Uh, if you had, to, if you wanted to put Sting in, I think the perfect time was when he came back uh, in the middle of the main event, where Flair was cheating a little too, a little bit too much. Yeah, and, I don't think uh, we needed they, to see him before. No, they could have easily brought him in then, just to stop uh, Flair from ch- cheating a little bit. But I completely agree with you. Putting Luger in after the, the top babyface, putting the stand in to follow the top baby face who's injured it was a silly idea yeah so no one's cheering for luger rick flair comes out people are well it's weird with rick flair isn't it people are kind of cheering him but they also know they should be booing him because they love him whatever he comes out and he makes people like respect luger as the face you know he plays up the tactics he does the cheating he makes luger look good he sells those military press slams like crazy flown all the way across the ring a fun fact for you here, uh, Ric Flair won his very first World Heavyweight Championship in this very building from Harley Race. Oh, is it uh, the Starcade? The Starcade And match. it's also Ric Flair's birthday. Uh, yeah, it's his 41st birthday and he hails from uh, North Carolina, so this is his home state. Yeah, so like you said, this match goes 38 minutes. And there's not a boring second throughout. We have done a whole podcast on Ric Flair and how he can control an environment. And watching this match throughout the duration of it, the insane thing about Ric Flair is not the fact that he's amazing and he's that talented, but that he seems to do it on autopilot. Yeah. Like, you're you're 34 minutes in, and Ric Flair's doing the exact right thing at the right time. And I don't genuinely believe he's consciously thinking about it. That is just his his impeccable timing and, and talent for feeling the crowd. But I just wanted to talk about the starting out process a little bit, and why I miss the small things in wrestling that aren't prevalent today. There's certain things that... Cody has tried to bring back, but the majority of wrestling fans and wrestlers don't want any time for it. Just the like the ref checking Flair's feet, the rules being talked about for a championship match, the wrestlers ignoring and talking shit. But then when Flair yeah, that was stu- a really cool stare down at the beginning of the match. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Really, really intense. But one of the most important aspects of Flair is the beginning. The feeling out process to his matches is so important. Uh, the way he, he complains to the ref, he refuses. There's a, a point where Luger uh, puts his hand up for a test of strength, and Flair circles him for a minute or two. T- Terry Funk did a great job of um, explaining that Flair was trying to put his hand down to get Luger to his position, and then Luger grabbed the hand, and Flair went into his agony thing on his knees. And that those small moments are building up. A character they're building up what we expect from rick flair which is a dastardly heel and they're building up from luger for luger the powerhouse who's frustrated by these dirty tactics so he he, he kind of lays out this the story of the match like a plot synopsis before he gets started 
which is why I think once we get into the action, which is about 10 minutes in, we're already immersed. Uh, and, and, and we actually saw in this show itself moments in which people tried to pace the match, tried to do the feeling out process, tried to keep running out of the ring to frustrate their opponents. And it was boring. Yeah, honestly. no one does it better. Flair, Flair is the only person that doesn't, he doesn't make it boring whatsoever. He makes it immersive. We're about 30, 35 minutes into this thing. And then um, Sting comes out because Ric Flair is cheating during uh, figure four leg holds. He keeps on holding onto the ropes. Sting comes out to try and tell the ref what's going on. Ric Flair continues to beat Lex down. And then Sting is on the sidelines cheerleading Lugaron, gets in his face and just like fires him up. And then Luger does this Hulk Hogan comeback. Uh, no selling all the moves. He gets thrown into the guardrail and just walks away from it. Ric Flair starts running away because he's scared of him now, but not like in a good way, you know. And then finally we have Arn Anderson and Ol Anderson run out. And then this match um, gets thrown away as a count out because Lex Luger is outside kind of trying to help the injured Sting. But surely it should have been a DQ for Lex Luger. So this, again, like the beginning, made no sense at the end. I could see that I was looking I was looking at the Andersons throughout this and I could see that they seem to have consciously done their best not to hit Luger back uh, because they could see the stupidity of outside interference with Luger hitting them but as soon as they hit him the the ref would have to call for a DQ and it, it felt a lot like talented veterans uh, trying to cover up a bad finish by Booker's and I, I really don't understand why we had to finish like this, honestly. They, the, that babyface fire that you were talking about, because there's a point where uh, Flair goes in for the kill and he starts attacking the knees, and it like it's the crucial moment. Then the, obviously the ref gets knocked out. Luger goes mental. The rack is on, and he looked amazing. Flair, Flair and the booking around that managed to make him look so good there was no need to further try and save him by having a count out because that actually made him look worse. And Lex Luger isn't like a huge main eventer at this point. So like, does it even hurt him to lose clean? He didn't even need to lose clean. If he had lost with dirty tactics, maybe the Andersons beating him up, the ref staying down for a little bit longer, Flair getting the pin. That's a lot more logical and a lot more interesting than a, a blatant count out which the the worst part of that count out is that tries to extend our sense of belief because yeah. it, it's quite clearly just not logical and it doesn't make any sense so the reason this happened is because they thought sting was going to be out injured until september luckily for them sting has this uh, same method of healing john cena has and he comes back in june but they thought they were going to have to have a Lex Luger, Ric Flair program all the way throughout the whole year, pretty much till September. So they were trying to keep Lex Luger strong to, to carry on. But is it really a big deal to lose to Ric Flair, like the biggest name in all of wrestling? No, it's it's not at all. And even if they wanted to carry on the feud, just just have them lose dirty. How, how, like how many times have you seen a six month feud throughout the entirety of wrestling? which started with the babyface losing via a dirty pin. Like, it, it's, it just yeah. writes itself. That's 101, really, isn't it? There were a lot of strange finishes to, to this entire show. There were a lot of rolls, roll-ups and uh, quick wins and dirty tactics or, like, 
a, a wrestler being thrown into a cameraman for a schoolboy. Yeah, there's a few matches that are quite unsatisfying. But this match was a lot of fun. I love this match. I'm I'm surprised as a flare mark. I'm surprised I've never seen it before, and I, I will probably be watching this again. Uh, so the Observer gave it four and a half stars. I think that's pretty much right on the money. I, um, you could argue that it would go down a quarter star because of the finish, but I think by that point they'd put on such a showcase that you couldn't really possibly give it anything less. Well, yeah, when I saw how much there was left to go on the shot, I didn't even think Lex Luger could go that long. Luger's performance in this and the way that Ric Flair worked with him just shows you that WWF in 1993 were looking for the next Hulk Hogan and they spent so much money on the promotion of Lex Luger as the next big thing and they did a countrywide tour where Lex yeah, got in his Lex Express. Yeah, <laughs> They spent so much money with it only, only to squander it completely in one of the worst finishes in, in history. And Ric Flair's just made this guy in 40 minutes, who two weeks ago was a heel. Mm. Doesn't that sum it up? I wonder what they're going to do. Well, we'll find out, I guess, in the coming months, what they're going to do to drop the ball with Lex Luger. You you look at uh, results in the future. I'm This is my new product. I've become so frustrated with <laughs> WWE in, in the current environment, and I'm so behind with AEW and Impact that this is now my product. And it's actually almost authentic because we watched Clash of Champions two weeks ago and we watched the pay-per-view today, which is the exact amount of time. So it's it's been authentically <laughs> built for me. So I'm not going to get any spoilers for it. Okay, okay. I won't give you any spoilers. Well, maybe not the best match on the card because it may, probably was the main event, but my favourite match on the card had to be the tag team match. The, which one? There's five. There's so many tag team matches, it must have pissed you off. Can you, can you, but before we get into this one, because this one was quite obviously the best thing on the show up until the main event, can you, do you have any idea why there were so many tags on this mat, on this pay per view? But there was on Clash as well, wasn't there? It's really, I've never b- seen a promotion before that had more tags than singles. Right, and, and we got, we got three championship matches, and two of them are tag team championship matches. That's the amusing thing to me. Apparently, Jim Hurd wanted to thin the roster out. So, and he wanted like 28 guys or something. So you just have, what, 15, 10 tag teams and Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And Norman the Lunatic as the opener, yeah? Oh, Christ, man. No, I don't know why there's so many tag teams. But I mean, you got like... the tag t- Look at the tag teams you got. They're absolute legends. Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express, we'll talk about now. But we've also got the Road Warriors, the Freebirds, the Steiners, and the Andersons. Yeah, what a stacked card that was. Yeah, so the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express. And this is just one of those legendary rivals. I've seen the Rock and Roll Express. I've seen a few of their matches because Ring of Honor did a thing on them when they returned a couple of years ago, but I don't think I've ever seen a proper Midnight Express match. Ricky Morton also appeared on AEW Dynamite a couple of months ago and hit a Cana- a perfect Canadian destroyer. Yeah, they're, they're so, back full-time as competitors. He's yeah. he's still got it, man. It's, it's, but uh, did you... A, a quick shout-out to Cornette's promo before this match. Uh, he, he has a refrain of how some things never change. How statues are pulled and gov- pulled down and governments are thrown, but some things will never change. The Midnight Express beating the Rock and Roll Express will never change. It was a great little selling point. For it took only a minute, and he got everything that he wanted to say said, and he made it interesting and exciting. Yeah, man, Cornell's like one of the best promos ever of all time. 
I mean, Cornet was great in this match as well. Cornet did everything in his power to try and make his team win this match. He was up on the apron every other minute. He even squared off with the ref at the one point, and the ref <laughs> shoved him down. He had the tennis racket out. Um, I'm pretty sure Cornet and JR are actually lifelong best friends backstage. Kayfabe, in this match, JR was ripping it out of Cornet that the ref should eject him, that he has no place being ringside, that he's the worst manager of all time, uh, or the most despicable well, manager. You know what? The, Jim Cornet and the Midnight Express's uh, heel tactics was so... They went for... They did so many things. It was unrelenting to the point where... I was into this match, and like, I was like, you know, Cornet is such a fucking little cockroach, man. <laughs> like, because he was just popping up, and he was he was bumping like a fiend, yep. and he was screaming and hollering, and he just it actually genuinely felt annoying. Like, not not in a storyline way, in a real way, he became annoying because he wouldn't leave the match alone. Apart from when they got into their crucial action points where he, he left off a bit. But, I mean, that's that's a great manager. And it, it, he, he actually... I, I'm amazed myself that he managed to pull me in enough so that I wanted to see the Rock and Roll Express beat the Midnight Express. And that is a very rare feeling uh, after watching wrestling for 20 years. Yeah, you're usually always rooting for the bad guys. Yeah. No, I, I, wanted, I wanted to see the Rock and Roll Express... Uh, murder him so the rock and roll express did get the win after watching this match i get the feeling that um marty Gennetti and Shawn michaels are pretty much based off these two teams oh yeah 100 percent. I, I think Gennetti and michaels were basically the young bucks and rock and roll express were the hardies right. Right. really i'm kind of surprised they weren't called the rockers express now mm. so many expresses Back then. I'm glad that they left that one up. Well, in the mid-90s, I think WWF had a very short-term effect of having the new Rock and Roll Express and the new Midnight Express, which lasted about two months. I think it was the same year that they got fake Diesel and fake Razor Ramon, so that says everything about that. Is that, that when Jim Cornette was with WWF? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure Jim Cornette was a fan of it. No, I can't imagine he is, because this is, this is his baby, right? The... Midnight yeah. Express. Yeah, yeah. These these are his two favorite tag teams of all time. That he will not stop talking about these guys. He talks about these guys every single uh, episode of his podcast. So you know me. I you know I love tag team wrestling. This was my favorite match of the night. The Observer gave it uh, four and a quarter stars. So literally a quarter less than the main event. I gave it four. Uh, I don't think I can't see anybody giving this less than four. Even if the rating system is entirely subjective, there's no I can't see anybody uh, not thinking this was a great match. Also, I just want to shout out to Terry Funk for doing a great job in this match. He, he had a really good little monologue where he talked about just how far away two feet in a ring can be while uh, some submissions were being applied. And then they did a nice shot round the ring, uh, probably entirely by accident, just as he was saying that. And he, he added some sort of psychological structure to a match in general uh, by just signifying that while it doesn't look a long way away, uh, it can be in the wrestler's mind, which is a really good save for the guy trying to get the tag and he's too near his tag partner. Yeah, Terry Funk is amazing. I really hope he stays on commentary f for a while as we're doing this. He did mention 
briefly during the commentary that he had classed himself as retired. So this was his his then retirement. Yeah, he so th- this is his first retirement, right? But I think he's quite quickly about to come back out of retirement. I I haven't I can't actually remember what it was, but I think maybe two clashes before this, he'd had that uh, barn burner with Ric Flair, like the four and a half star classic. So I think this was he'd literally just sat down at the commentators booth. I don't know why he was wearing pumpkin innards on his suit though. What at this show? Yeah, oh, maybe he had some weird orange gunk streamers. Maybe uh, Tuxedo I... Terry only has one tuxedo. It's the one he used at um, <laughs> Halloween Havoc. I love J- I love the fact that Jr. is just uh, calling him Tuxedo Terry now. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's that is the, his name, and that's fine with me. And uh, to to funk Ross's Jimbo Diddley. <laughs> so the you know the the King of the Deathmatch stuff that hasn't even happened yet. No, that's like four years away. Yeah, Terry Funk is a crazy, and bastard. he's retired currently. So, but I I do love him on commentary, and he's making these uh, WCW shows really fun to watch. So I hope he stays on for a while. So I saw a recent video of him calling out somebody who was pretending to be him online. <laughs> he was just, hey, what? what? Right. Why would you? I'm gonna beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he, I don't think he knows how the internet works. He just thinks he 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 thinks somebody is pretending to be him, but he he said it in such a sweet way, like he didn't realize that this happened to everyone, and he he just he called out that whoever was pretending to be Terry Funk online and said he was gonna like basically murder him in, in his sweet little <laughs> voice of his. Okay, brilliant. Well, like so on Twitter or something, someone like with a fake account. Yeah. Right. So don't start a fake Terry Funk account, everyone. <laughs> Legitimately scary guy, even though he looks like he you could have a lot of fun. Just the sweetest guys always him. are. Have you yeah. noticed that the sweetest guys always have like the softest voices, but they're also the scariest? It's because they have to grow up mean, you know. They've got bullied. <laughs> so we're out. Let's start with the opening, then, shall we? Let's, and then do the rest of these matches. Sure. So the the first match on the card is Bud Sawyer and uh, Kevin Sullivan. Beating the dynamic dudes, which is Johnny Ace or John Laurinaitis, most people would know him as, and Shane Douglas, which is a weird team. Our our fate, one of our favourites on this podcast, Shane Douglas, our favourite actor of all time. <laughs> yeah, Oscar worthy. Um, it's amazing how people in wrestling can start somewhere and end up somewhere completely different through ass kissing, isn't it? Jo- John Laurinaitis, in, at this point in 1990, didn't look long for the wrestling world. He uh, he was terrible in this. Yeah, he was actually the worst person in this entire match. He couldn't work at all. And I assume I've heard. I mean, Jr. doesn't like him very much. It sounds like through backstabbing and ass kissing, he's gotten to the position that he has in WWE. But uh, this was a weird start to the show. I'm not really sure why this was an opener. No, Johnny Ace and Shane Douglas don't mix well at all, and they're very cheeky for the baby faces. They almost feel like they're the heels, but then. Kevin Sullivan and Mad Dog are proper animalistic heels. There's also there's also the weird idea of this is Kevin Sullivan and Buzz Sawyer didn't get a entrance. We only got an entrance for the Dynamic Dudes. So I mean, and the way that the match was booked, the Dynamic Dudes were coming out on top and beating the old vets every single time. Every every move that Kevin Sullivan and and Mad Dog tried would be thwarted by the young upcoming faces so everything 
in this match pointed to the dynamic dudes picking up the win and and pretty easily and what we got was the opposite because I, I can only assume apparently Shane Douglas was pissing everybody off backstage because he didn't like the material he was given and Johnny Ace was trying to get a raise it felt like this match was uh, changed on the fly yeah apparently Johnny Ace was politicking backstage even when he was a jobber in WCW so I think a lot of people didn't like him uh, but I think because they were like the young guys and a bit like Tom Zeke and Brian Pillman they were kind of the next big thing so maybe they were meant to get the win uh, get the rub get Honestly, a push watching the tags on this pay-per-view, the only young guys that stood out to me completely, and you know the answer to this, were, is the Steiners. The, the dyma- dynamic dudes had nothing going on. They seemed, and like I'm, th- I'm not throwing shade because <laughs> uh, I no genuinely because when we always we seem to always dig on Shane Douglas on this podcast, and I in the mid '90s there, I think he was one of the best wrestlers in the world, but here. Johnny Ace and Shane Douglas just seem completely gormless. The crowd are, are cheering them regardless because they're young, attractive faces. Because they're blonde. But, yeah, but they don't seem to be registering it or playing into it whatsoever. They just seem to be stumbling through this match with the help of Sullivan. Yeah, they're very green. And then it doesn't help that Sullivan and Mad Dog are like such experienced pros. They know what their character is and they're roughhousing these two and then dragging them through a brawl what's mad about this match is that this was the last time i think that you'd see three of the four of these competitors in a wcw ring right well i want to get onto that because i wanted to talk about this mad dog maddox guy i i talked that i felt bad for him about uh during the clash because he didn't get much screen time even though he was beating himself up so I thought maybe this guy was going to be someone to join my stable of lost 90s wrestlers, going mm-hmm. in with Ronnie Garvin and PN News. <laughs> um, yeah, so you he, he botches a dive, and he lands on his wrist very funny, and you can even see as he's making the walkout, Kevin Sullivan's trying to celebrate, and he, Mad Dog is ripping his arm down, and he's trying to hold his wrist. And if you look, it's bent the wrong way. So Ooh. he... Yeah, I didn't catch that. It, yeah, it looks really rough. So he sustained a fractured wrist, and he would actually be out of wrestling for about a year, never to be seen on WCW TV again, but he came back to do some house shows. But then about two years, so in 92, he dies of a heart attack due to a drug overdose. So this was the last time we properly saw him on television. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I thought I'd find some fun facts about this guy and I can put him in, in my stable of lost 90s guys. But it turns out he's a bit of a dick. His, his way of making money is that he would go to the territories and start up a wrestling school, get a load of teenagers to pay him money, and then bounce oh, oh after one or two sessions or not even, not even open the school, just take the money. Is this the guy that The Undertaker was talking yeah. about? Yeah, he trained. He, he, he stole money from the Undertaker, who is actually on this card. That's amazing. They were sharing a locker room after he swindled him. I remember Taker talking about that story of like uh, some guy phoning him up, and he was like, "Yeah, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to come to my backyard, kid." And then he just was never there. So Taker got pissed off and just took his dogs home. <laughs> apparently this was this was mad dog buzz sawyer that's amazing yeah it's this guy uh i did find one cool fact about him though that in uh 
was it 85, 86, something like that. He was in a match dubbed the last battle of Atlanta with Wildfire Tommy Rich in this massive steel cage match. And the cage was big, slightly bigger than the ring. And most people say that this was the inspiration for the Hell in a Cell match that would come 10 years later. Okay, well, that's cool. Yeah, that's Dude, cool. Sorry, what show was it? Was What promotion was it? Um, oh, I don't know the promotion. I just know that the show was called The Last Battle of Atlanta. I'm going to look that up. That's interesting. Uh, so the actual match, what did you think? Uh, it was a dud, I think. I mean, I mean, not not because of Kevin Sullivan and Buzz Sawyer. I mean, even even though those two seemed like they didn't really want to be there that night. I feel like they didn't want to be facing off with these two guys. Who, they were probably jobbers at this point. Uh, Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace. Well, again, they were out of the company shortly, weren't they? So this was their big thank you, fuck you, bye. Mm. I thought Sawyer tried to help out uh, Johnny Ace and, and Douglas quite a bit by playing into the crowd, doing like biting, trying to do the heelish tactics. It looked like Sullivan couldn't really be bothered. He's just he just he he put way more work into getting the Norman the lunatic over at Clash Ten. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, the Observer gave this two stars. I also gave this two stars. Oh, I would have gone slightly under. Well, but... I mean, it was fine for what it was. It wasn't atrocious, but it, I mean, it was okay to to build up the crowd a little bit. I yeah, think good the, opener, I guess. The thing that really killed the crowd was the next match. We're backstage with Norman the lunatic. Uh, he's with Missy, is it? And he tricks her into giving him a kiss for good luck because he needs it against Cactus Jack. So he ain't as dumb as he looks, is he? This, once again, last two weeks ago at the Clash, Clash of Champions, Jim Cornette c- c- literally called him a paedophile. This, this time he's pretending to be stupid with teddy bears around his neck, wearing a, a Pee Wee Herman spinner hat, coaxing Missy Hyatt into giving him a hug and then a kiss, and then multiple kisses. What? <laughs> Why is everybody into Norman the Lunatic? Why is he such a fan favourite? The guy's a creep. Yeah, he's a creep. I didn't realise that Norman the Lunatic went on to play Bastion Booger. I don't even know who that is. It's a early 90s WWF jobber. He basically wore like a giant nappy. Oh, okay. Well, it suits him. He seems to like these fucked gimmicks. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, JR has the line of the night for me. He says, this isn't a match of wits. This is a match of nitwits. Great stuff, man. Great stuff. Because Cactus Jack has got the um, gimmick of, what was it? It was like he's into self-health guides or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I assume the only reason that this match exists was because they they needed a singles match for the card and they decided to put two people together because both of their gimmicks were being stupid. Yeah. Right. Well, and also they're they're big men that do a lot of brawling, so on paper they 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 fit. And um, and you know what? It wasn't an awful match. The Observer fucking rips it apart, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. I don't know if I'm just being biased because it's Mick Foley. Once again, trying to explain this in the present. So, yeah. not only does you got this guy called Norman the Lunatic, right? And you've got Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack Manson. Cactus Jack. Manson and Cactus Jack Manson not only does not get a, an entrance but loses in six or seven minutes to Norman the Lunatic, who is wheezing his way through this entire match. <laughs> there's a point, there's a point in both Norman the Lunatic matches that I've seen so far. 
about halfway the four or five minute mark where he literally like halfway can't breathe anymore and he's just he's just like literally trying to walk a little bit faster and whoever's against him Kevin Sullivan or Cactus Jack has to start playing to the crowd to to let him catch his breath a little bit well I feel like Foley isn't even doing that he makes this guy work fast because Foley I think is one of these new guys that likes to have a faster pace or he does his crazy shit jumping onto the concrete so why, I think he's why was really he put... doing why was he doing mental backdrops in this? Like really like did he have to sell that hard to the extent that it is going to hurt his body uh for Norman the lunatic? Well, I don't think it's for Norman. I think Foley is just being like undervalued at this point cuz he has proved himself in the in the late 80s, right? Already. But um like you said, the last the last show, this show, sub ten minute matches on big shows. I think he's just trying to impress the guys backstage. Yeah, I guess so. I I did like halfway through this match. Uh, Jim Ross's biggest compliment for it is that it was strange, <laughs> and instead of uh, instead of being polite, Funk uh, just went straight into shitting on it, and then talked about the main event. That's surprising because Funk and F- maybe Foley gets Funk's respect in a couple more years. He hasn't, I mean, hasn't got it yet. If anything, this is a good thing to put on Cactus Jack's CV. I mean, it was an awful match; it's dreadful, <laughs> but it it didn't drag. It like and no, it Norman, sure. it it was pretty entertaining for what it was, and that's entirely on Foley. Yeah. What did the Observer give it? Give this one? I think they. I gave it I th- a star. I think they gave it a dud. Okay. Oh no, no, no it's, they it's g- kind of they gave it a star. They gave it a star. Yeah. So then we get the the Express versus the Express, and after that, we got the Road Warriors versus the Skyscrapers. We have the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering backstage of Gordon Sully. We also had an interview right at the top of the show with uh, Teddy Long explaining that one of the Skyscrapers is out and that we've got a new surprise tag partner up with Mark Calloway. Mark Calloway only joined the Skyscrapers at the beginning of this month, by the way. And now there's already a new partner for him. And Gordon Sully suspects that this guy no-showed, but uh, uh, Terry Long's trying to convince us otherwise, that he's he's scouted this other guy to join because he's better. So the, um, this is really depressing because I was really um, up on the confrontation between the new skyscrapers and the road warriors at the the clash of champions i thought it was a really effective uh 10 minute brawl that sold the pay-per-view quite well and i thought that skyscrapers came off really well in that as well yeah uh and really i think dan spivey is the guy that ruined the undertaker's chances in wcw you can blame dan spivey for being the guy that created the undertaker because According to pretty much everybody, Dan Spivey skipped the television tapings the week before for money money reasons, and also he said in a shoot he didn't like the way that the Road Warriors were treating Mark Calloway, uh, and he didn't want to work with the Road Warriors, so he just skipped town, and he, he couldn't be bothered to turn up for this. But in turn, it also kind of killed The Undertaker's career in WCW, because Go, the Clash of, you remember the Clash of Champions brawl, right? Yeah. It was really effective, it was fast-paced, it was exciting. Yeah. And then we got to this match, and it... I mean, I've never seen a five-minute Chicago street fight before. I don't know whether you have. And Well, I think the Dudleys um, had a few when they were uh, pushing up on weight in TNA. But on... Yeah, 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 probably. But I, 
you know what I mean? Like, uh, I feel like if Dan Spivey hadn't of dropped out of this, then this probably would have gone 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, because this is pretty much uh, the death of the skyscrapers now. Like they're done. Well, so, this was so, a complete, complete and utter afterthought. Yeah, uh, like Undertaker was basically tossed out of the ring like a jobber, and so that they could start on the new faction, mm-hmm. or the, the new feud. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a shame for Mark Calloway because he showed promise in the last match, and then obviously later in this very year he goes on to to WWF. So, and we we even said that as a skyscraper he's got the look he looks like he could be a main event player even in this gimmick of wcw so yeah yeah you're right it's what i find crazy is how gordon sully like calls the guy out on on pay-per-view says oh no he just no showed and then teddy long awkwardly has to be like oh no 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 i I scouted these other guys i guess that was the business back in the day like he, he didn't mess around with that that Vince had a different approach to things. He just wouldn't talk about it because he thought it made the WWE look weak, I think. WCW had no problem with just calling somebody out for not working professionally. Um, I, I do want to mention that the Road Warriors promo, I, I did really enjoy it. Hawk states that the Warriors have not only slept in alleys, streets and gutters in Chicago, but have actually put 16 guys in hospital in preparation for this match. <laughs> Just in preparation for this one match. 16. I don't know where he got that number from. And for no apparent reason, they also let me know that Paul Wellering has just been to Tokyo. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Back off holiday. I I love uh, the the, guys like the Road Warriors and like the eight the eighties coked up WWE wrestlers. They talk so fast and and so loud that you don't actually pay attention to what they're saying. And if you like rewind it once or twice and actually listen to every word that they're saying, it becomes usually becomes hilarious because they're talking so fast and so loud so that you won't be able to hear what they're actually saying to you. Which is usually, like, nothing. Yeah. Nothing of importance. It's just the intensity. I, I don't know what sig- what's the significance of 16 guys is, but, I mean... So, Le- Legion of Doom come out into this match on motorbikes looking like absolute monsters. So good. That they're just going to murder people, which was their aim. They did do that. Uh, it was a weird street fight. The only weapon really used was the guardrail. Uh, but it was, a, it, was, it was a fist fight, really. And then Ron Simmons and uh, Butch Reed walk out. So, woman had scouted them last show, we think. We kind of worked out, maybe, what she was doing. But now it seems like Teddy Long has scouted them. Yeah, woman's woman's gone. (laughs) Yeah. So, so they come out to have Teddy Long's back. Teddy Long gets thrown out of the ring, uh, at which point these two catch him, and then suddenly now they're a team. So, Skyscraper's officially done with this match. Oh, at this match. And the next storyline going forward, I guess, is do they have a do they have a team oh, name? Doom. Butch Reed and, and Ron Simmons. Oh yeah, yeah. Are they still called that without the mask? I would assume so. Rubbish name. Yeah. Well, the whole anyway. thing's a bit rubbish, isn't it? You've got talents like Butch Reed and Ron Simmons, and you're playing them with stupid masks and stuff. Like, looked how look how good they looked in those suits. Mm. What? Why have they been under a mask for so long? This was the match I also noticed where the entrance way. The, the ramp is so weird it's built like a really bad children's slide did you did you notice it's it's got like a top bit and then a a really bad little slide that they have to kind of awkward they it, so if like they start running they have to slow down again for the little 
It was uh, steep, wasn't it? Period. And then start running again. Very strange stuff. They had plenty of space there to make a bigger slide. Compared to the Clash, which was freaking massive. Yeah, yeah. They they went a little bit too low on budget. Maybe that's a Jim Hurd thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't really have much to say about this match. Yeah, I, no, I was Ro- very, very disappointed with it. Yeah, Road Warriors won. It was one of those matches that wasn't really a match. It was just kind of a, a segment building to a new feud. Which is a shame, because it's exactly what War- Road Warriors did on the last pay-per-view. Which was really, really good. That's mm. why I'm so sad about it. Uh, Spivey apparently would come back as the skyscrapers once again, once Mark Calloway had already gone. And for a little tiny period of time, uh, the skyscrapers consisted of Dan Spivey and a green Sid Vicious. So, When's that happen? Uh, Starcade. So we've got that to look forward to. Of this year? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that that is a dud on... Uh... The Observer. Uh, I gave it. I gave it a star. I thought, you know, be, um, the the true dud for me was the next match. This was the. This, I actually fell asleep during this match, legitimately. Not. Which was weird, right? So okay, so this is the NWA United States Tag Team Championship match, and this, for context, is actually a rematch. So there was a tournament for the belt, which ended on the very last TV show, which was. Brian Pillman and Tom Zeke beating the Freebirds, and they rematched at the very next show. The booking on the booking in WCW right now is all over the place. You had Brian Pillman and the Z-Man go ten minutes with the Mod Squad at Clash of Champions, not as champions. You you just had them go ten minutes with the Jobber yeah. team, then yeah. you you give them belts. On the last television before the pay per view, instead of doing it on Clash, and 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 then you expect us to be into a match um, that has had no build up whatsoever, where the Freebirds have just come in. You've currently got new champions that have been champions for about seven days, and then you you make it go twenty five minutes. Yeah, twenty five minutes. This was a this was a slog. Was this? Am I looking too far into this, or was the Chicago Street fight five minutes because plans changed and it became an angle, and that that was actually supposed to have more time, and this was supposed to be about ten? Quite possibly. Yeah, you might have hit the nail on the head there because twenty-five minutes for this is far too long. Seeing as though that the the Steiners and the Andersons get about fifteen minutes after this, and it was just incredibly boring. Like, there were so many chin locks, rest holds, sleeper holds, which was very surprising considering the Freebirds were a part of it. So, yeah, the Freebirds came out and the crowd was so hot and they even got on the mic and did some, like, awesome stuff. Pillman and Tom Zeep came out. They played the music. This was incredibly cheesy, but it worked for the crowd at the time. They played the Freebirds music and danced and, and took the piss out of the Freebirds. And going into the match, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, this is for the belt. The crowd's super into it. All these guys are charismatic. And then two minutes into the match, that's it. It just fell off a cliff. This was the sort of match where in current in the current era, you would hear CM Punk chants. There was just yeah. nothing going on. I don't know whether, again, I'm not sure whether Jimmy Garvin, Michael Hayes had issues backstage, but I've seen some Freebirds matches. I mean... 
to be fair, Terry Gordy is a good part, a big part of their act. But those two together, I've seen them light crowds up. You've seen uh, Michael Hayes light light a crowd up as well. Like yeah. you've seen him just as a manager go mental. Mm-hmm. They were they were bored here. They they couldn't be bothered whatsoever. I, this this was worse than like a house show match. Well, I think they were doing it on purpose. I think they were sandbagging because they didn't want to do the job for Brian Pillman and Tom Zeke. Uh, you think? Yeah. So these two guys were loved by backstage by the um the, the booking committee uh they were meant to be the next big thing and i don't know if it was this match or just the title run as a whole which i don't think lasts very long but they completely turned on tom zeke it turned out that tom zeke has the look but has a real shit attitude and he's already politicking whereas brian cage super uh brian cool pillman. guy uh, sorry yeah brian pillman super cool guy got all the moves he's innovative he's got this new style that everyone's looking for in the early 90s and they really wanted to push him before uh all the stuff that happens to him later in the 90s so but they they completely turned off tom zeke but right now they love these two so i'm thinking you know they're trying to squash the free birds by making these two these two guys look better um tom zink i i i don't think had much of anything uh, i've seen him in 90 i've seen him in 92 i i don't get the gimmick i don't get the charisma he was trash in the ring in this match he he was really letting e- literally everybody down and i think brian pillman was so far was so far removed from zinc's talent uh, uh, that was and that was only properly seen when Brian Pillman got into a tag with Steve Austin and, and people started to notice. I mean, uh, Jim Ross said that he noticed early on and you, you're telling me the, the backstage people noticed early on. I think what I'm saying is that Pillman could have gone far a lot quicker without Zinc by his side. Um, but I, I do feel sorry for, the, for this tag uh, because I don't really know what, like, do they rub people the wrong way? Because there's no reason that the mod squad should have gone ten minutes with uh, these two, and now you're t- the Freebirds go twenty five minutes with these two and and just put sleep holds on them. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention, by the way, Michael Hayes puts sleeper holds on both guys for two or three minutes. We later learn that Tom Zink's finishing move is a sleeper hold. <laughs> what is it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, was first of all, why is his finishing move a sleeper hold? And second of all, Michael Hayes must have known that, right? So, oh, for it, sure. It completely adds to your idea that they were purposely sandbagging that they didn't want anything to do with putting this team over, which might well have also been why the the match just dragged so long. Mm. Even the finish came out of nowhere. Yeah, the, I, yeah, it felt like nobody in this match really wanted to be there. I feel like there must have been some some talking, some arguments before this night or on the this, night. This was a plodding, lazy match. Mm. Yeah, this was this was some '90s politics right here, for yeah. sure. Completely swing the other way. You got uh, the Anderson. Well, they were they were announced here as the Anderson brothers, which isn't always necessarily true. Sometimes they're cousins. Some t- I heard sometimes they're billed as father and son. <laughs> which I don't know how you could believe. <laughs> yeah, can you? Imagine? And I know exactly which is which as well. Ole Anderson uh, must have been so pissed off with that. <laughs> uh, versus the Steiner brothers, and this is for the World NWA Tag Team Championship. 
like you said, the uh, Steiners walk out with the sign and the bands about Sting's revenge, which plays onto the finish uh, later on in the night in the main event. And uh, I think I've already told you, but Arn Anderson is 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 my guy in this era. I love him. Arn's great. Arn's great. So uh, the Steiners take control of this match straight away, and then pretty much take control of the ring. It became like a bit of a ter- uh, territory thing. The guys kept throwing each other out of the ring and trying to control the ring, and and it was a, it was a wild brawl. And actually, I would have preferred if this match went longer than the last one. I feel like when the the match, like you said, the match ended really quickly in a roll up, and I feel like these both teams still had a lot more to give. So this this is why the pacing is so strange, man. Like you have the Anderson brothers versus the Steiner brothers, willing to work with each other, wanting to work with each other, with the four talents that are involved. Why would you not give this match the time? This was the match to to give the time. Also. Pacing wise, it it makes perfect sense because if you got the Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express, nobody's following that. They all went mm-hmm. out to prove that nobody's. They saw five tag matches on the card and they said, "Right, well, we're gonna be the only tag match you remember." But yeah. if if you've got um, the skyscrapers match and the Freebirds match in between, make them short, calm the crowd down. If you're gonna have this amount of tag matches, and then give them a longer tag match right at the end, which is actually decent. These guys worked really well together. They gelled really well. And it was another example of old guys knowing how to pace a match and knowing how to work it. Uh, once again, Ole Anderson and Arn Anderson were playing around, uh, moving around, being very suspicious of getting into close contact, coming out of the ring, going back into the ring. And it made sense because... It, it felt like they were being disrespected by a younger team that were better than them. Which is the the story, really, that the Fle- Freebirds and Zink and Pillman should have been playing. But the Steiners and the Andersons here did it really well. I do think we're going to see these two teams go at it again um, later so. down the road. They, they had a, a arm injury angle, so I really hope we do see another match. I'm pretty sure we do, but not to my knowledge. But it's got to happen, surely. Have you point. seen the Capital Combat card? Uh, I, I looked at it briefly. It actually doesn't look too bad. The only thing I know about it is, I'm pretty sure, is Robocop. Yeah, Robocop turns up. He's involved. Yeah, I really like this match. Um, I really like the, the period of time where announcers would say Ham Hawk. I, I do miss that as a thing. I really love the Steiners. They're always entertaining. They're great athletes um scott is just uh, scott i mean scott gets that frankensteiner out man Ugh. yeah and then he just oh the finish where he just boots on anderson in the face then grabs the small package it like awesome it's weird how the finish happened but they 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 nailed it again it's one of those things where like the actual guys are doing their job perfectly it's just the bookers that have screwed up this was a, a good match the observer gave it two and a quarter stars which I guess for seeing as though it felt like it could have gone twice as long is fair, but I wouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really see two and a quarter. I I gave it three and a quarter. There's definitely more that that, that could have been done, and sometimes it was a little too slow to be great. But there was a lot of potential here, and it was there was a lot of uh, good stuff going on. And then we talked about the main already, Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and then the match ends really with kind of a chaotic brawl and injured Sting trying to trying to run away from a massive brawl of all six guys and then that's that's it that's how also shout out to luger absolutely rocking 
uh, a tracksuit which was somewhere between the 80s and the 90s in his promo. And also, Flair, did you notice this? How many times have you watched a wrestler count on his fingers and you, you're always surprised that they never get it wrong? <laughs> what? They don't... You know when they're like, oh, I'm... I, I, I'm going to beat you up eight times and they put up eight. Oh, right. I, well, me personally, I always expect somebody to, to mess it up. This time, of all people to mess it up was Ric Flair. He, say, he says he's a six-time world champion and puts up seven fingers. So <laughs> Fair enough. Those, uh, those interviews before the matches, Ric Flair's was amazing because well, it's Ric Flair, of course it is. Lex Luger one was a bit painful. He's a very bad pro. It was better than his Clash of Champions 10 did, promo. Did you notice, though, that they made yeah, because a it, point to say this was taped earlier today? No, I didn't see that. <laughs> I think it was Terry Funk that said his that. His Clash of Champions 10 promo, he, he didn't understand the use of first, second, and third person. So I'm, I'm glad that he was just, you know, at least speaking in names rather than you and I. So, uh, and in between the two promos, we cut back to the commentary team where JR and Terry Funk kind of hype up the match and then funk does a better job at selling luger's own match than lex luger did and even the crowd like hearing what funk is saying go crazy well i I don't really understand why they end ended the show with the commentary team that's one thing i don't really get oh that's like a like a legitimate sports thing isn't it back when you know in the 80s and 90s it was meant to look like a regular sport. I just, I yeah, I guess maybe it's just alien to me. But I thought it, the the main event action going off on the air is is, is perfect as it is really. But mm. uh, I mean, very small gripe. What was your favorite match on the show then? Oh, hundred percent. The uh, Express versus Express was. Oh really? Yeah, for me. Okay. Although, although that that's my but critically the Ric Flair Lex Luger match was the best match of the night. Lex Luger Ric Flair was my favorite. Uh, I think it was also just a, so much of a surprise. The Expresses I were closely followed second. Least favorite match? Whoa, probably probably the um, skyscrapers versus Animal versus Hawk because other than the main event, this was the only match really coming out of Clash that had been built up. Yeah. So yeah, I w- it, I was kind of really into it, and then you but know it, it also been built up well, which yeah. is the saddest thing I think. Yeah. I'm gonna go with the Freebirds, Pillman and Zinc, just because it was it was so boring. It physically put me to sleep, and people say that in an exaggerated manner. I physically fell asleep. I was planning <laughs> on watching this entire show last night, and I had to watch some of it today. It was a slog, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it, surprising it was, how long it went. There was a four minute chin lock on that thing. Overall rating, I give it. Okay, there's only really two, two and a half strong matches on the card, so I'll just give it like a. Like three out of five. Yeah. So a six out of ten. Oh, you want? Oh, you want it out of ten? Come on, man. I just... <laughs> <laughs> You're all over the place. Okay. I'll, uh, no, I give it five. Like right bang in the middle. Okay. I well, I thought that Flair Luger was a classic. I thought the Express matches were were classics. Uh, I enjoyed Anderson Steiner's. I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. I'm going to give it a, a strong seven. That was a seven. So this is the be- this is your favorite is this your favorite we've seen so far during the nineties? Uh, I'm pretty sure I gave Clash of Champions ten and eight. I might regret that, but 
there it is. You got really excited about the clash. <laughs> yeah. So this is the second best one so, so far. Okay. So part four of the '90s saga. We're back over with WWF watching WrestleMania six. I'm not looking forward to this one too much. I gotta admit, this is a big one. A lot of matches. How many matches uh, on the card? Like twelve. Yeah, something like that. Now I am actually looking forward to it. Not so much really the show because it's going to be a slog. But I'm really looking forward to talking to you because there's so much shenanigans around this WrestleMania. So much bullshit backstage and on camera. Oh, really? Yeah, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. It's in the uh, Toronto Skydome, right? Mm, I think so, something like that. It's their first big WrestleMania in Canada. And then the week after that, we're back with WCW for Capital Combat, which is in May. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we know which team you're on. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to Capital Combat. I will sit through WrestleMania. I should probably start it as soon as we finish this podcast because it's going to take me an entire week to watch. How are we going to finish these endings, man? We these need endings a, are so dreadful. We need a better ending. Like it, you just last week, I'm pretty sure you just edited it off. Like you couldn't <laughs> even be bothered to do the buy bit. <laughs> That's because I think I just, we didn't do a buy. I just finished the sentence and you just cut it. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> That's because what happened is that was when we recorded two in one night, so we didn't say bye. We just started gotta, the next You gotta one. do something like, uh, until next time, keep it botched. Like, like share, and subscribe, subscribe to, to keep, keep it, it botched, botched up, up brother. brother.